I'll invite you to turn to two openings of Scripture, Philippians chapter 4 and 1 Peter chapter 5. We started a series last Sunday morning that we want to continue this Sunday and then next Sunday on living carefree in a troubled world. We're going to use as a a text Scripture these two openings, Philippians 4 and 1 Peter 5. Paul is writing in Philippians chapter 4 by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, and he said, be careful for nothing. Uh, that's um, other translation says another translation says, be not anxious or don't fret about anything. He's talking about your worries. He's talking about concerns. He says, be careful or carefree. Careful for nothing means to be carefree, doesn't it? Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Have you ever noticed how people emphasize the last part of that verse more than the first part? And everything by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known unto God. Well, that's good. That's what we need to do. But that won't work if you don't put the first part of the verse in practice. Be careful for nothing is what enables you to make your request known in every situation through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving unto God. We said this before, but it bears repetition. Bears repeating, at least. Worry has a handle, but it's a single carry handle. If you're carrying your worries, God can't. But if he's got them, that means you don't have a handle on them at all. So be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And, verse 7, then the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Oh, Jesus, we want that. Well, notice how that comes. That comes by casting your cares over on the Lord. That comes by being carefree, by being careful for nothing. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we go. Notice verse 8 is a part of that. It says, finally, brethren. In other words, if you want the peace of God, you have to act on verse 6 and verse 8. Be careful for nothing, and here's how. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think. Everybody say think. Think on these things. Romans chapter 12 talks about the renewing of the mind. It says, be not conformed to this world. Verse 2, be not conformed to this world, but be renewed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I think a lot of Christians read that as removing of the mind. Because they don't give any attention to whatsoever to what they think. They think whatever they think is just the way it goes. But the Bible says if you're going to renew your mind, the Bible says if you're going to have the peace of God in your life, you're going to have to control your thoughts. And whether you know it or not, worries are just worry is just wrong thinking. Glad you came yet. Now, if the Bible says, if the Bible says, be careful for nothing and you're not careful for nothing. I know that's not good English, but you understand what I'm saying. If you're carrying the cares of life, that means you're operating in disobedience to what the Bible says to do. And that's sin in, in, in any way you want to slice it and dice it, that's sin. Worry is one of the most dangerous and damaging sins there is. But see, we, the church, don't think like that. We think, well, we're not supposed to lie. We're not supposed to cheat. We're not supposed to steal. Why? Because the Bible says not to do that. But everybody worries. The Bible says you're not supposed to. The Bible says that you should not worry just as much as you should not steal. 
The Bible says you should not worry just as much as you should not lie. The Bible says you should not worry just as much as you should not commit adultery. Now, you can get people on board with the other sins. You preach against adultery, you preach against lying and cheating and stealing and stuff like that. Everybody will jump up and down and say, yes, amen. You start talking about worry and everybody says, wait a minute. What are we supposed to do, Pastor Mike? Well, here's what you're supposed to do. First Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Casting all of your care upon him, for he careth for you. Casting all of your care upon him. He didn't say you don't have care. He just told you what to do with your care. See, some people will see Philippians 4, 6, and they'll say, well, everybody has cares. What do you mean be careful for nothing? You can't live without having cares. That's true. But the question is, what do you do with those cares? The Bible says to cast them over on the Lord. I like the Amplified on this. It says casting the whole of your care, all of your anxieties, all of your worries, all of your concerns, once and for all over on him. For he careth for you watchfully and... How does I say? If careth about you watchfully and for you affectionately. Casting the whole of your care over on him. You know, one of the things that keeps people's faith from working, and, and, and let me, I guess I should back up a little bit. There's different kinds of prayer. A lot of times I think uh, people have the idea that there's one kind of prayer, at least church people have the idea that there's one kind of prayer and only one kind of prayer and it's all the same and, and that's it. But you look at the life of Jesus, he prayed a lot of different types of prayer in a lot of different types of ways. There were times where he asked God for things. There were other times where he didn't ask God for anything. He just committed himself to the Lord. One mistake the church has made is they take Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane where he's committing himself to the Lord. It's the prayer of commitment, dedication unto him. Where he says, Lord, if there's another way other than the cross, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. And the church has taken that and said, well, okay, that must be the rule for prayer. Well, it is the rule for the prayer of commitment. But it certainly is not the rule for the prayer of faith. Because if you don't know what the will of God is, you can't ask in faith. Because faith begins where the will of God is known. Hello? So what the church has done, by and large, is the church has taken one rule of prayer, not my will but yours, because that sounds so, so committed, so humble. And we've tried to apply that to everything. Not my will but your will be done. Well, you can't pray the prayer of faith like that. The prayer of faith that contains the word if is not a faith prayer. The prayer of faith says, I believe it's mine. Well, if you don't know if it's the will of God for you, you can't believe it's yours. So you've got to have the will of God settled before you ever pray the prayer of faith. But what happens is a lot of people are trying to pray the prayer of faith, but they're holding on to their concerns. Well, Lord, I I just ask you to to meet my needs. Your word says that you'll, you'll meet my needs. You'll supply all of my needs according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And then they finish the prayer and they start thinking, but what am I going to do? But what am I going to do? That's what Philippians 4, 6 means. Be careful for nothing. In other words, don't think about what you're going to do. Turn with me over to, um, uh, what do we want to look at this? Uh, look with me over to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 has an interesting comment. I would show it to you from Matthew chapter 6 because that's where people are most familiar with it. But Luke 12 brings something out of this incident that I think is uh, important for us to see.
Notice Jesus said, we'll start reading in verse 22. Jesus said, therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life. Well, Jesus must have been thought it was important enough to talk about your thought life. Thoughts must be important enough for him to talk about. Take no thought for your life. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about worries. He doesn't say don't think about things. We need to think about things to be prepared. But he's talking about being overly concerned. He's talking about worrying. He says, take no thought for your life. Take no thought for your life. Take no thought for your life. Now, he did say something else on top of that. But, boy, if we just stopped there, it would be like, wow. But let's stop there and consider it for a minute. He's saying, don't you worry about it. I'll handle it. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. Just consider. uh, Go with me into fantasy land for just a moment. Consider. What if all of the promises of God were really true? What if Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses? What if God will supply all of your needs according to His riches and glory? What if the Holy Ghost will guide you in every situation and lead you into victory? What if all of that is true? What do you have to worry about? Well, then do you realize that worrying is a sign that you don't believe that? That's why worry is a sin. Whatever you're worrying about, whatever area you worry about, you're saying, I don't believe God's big enough to handle this. Even though the Bible may say something about it, somehow or another it's going to take me to work this all out. Jesus said, take no thought, therefore, for your life. For what you shall eat, neither for your body, what you shall put on. The life is more than meat and the body is more than raiment. Now, he's not saying you don't need those things. He's not saying, you know, don't worry about those earthly things. He's saying your life is a lot more important than just what you eat and drink. I'll take care of the other things. You focus on the important issues. Like growing in God. Like knowledge of the word. Like loving one another. That's what he's talking about. Therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, neither for your body, what you shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither have storehouse nor barn. And God feeds them. How much better are you, or how much more are you better than the fowls? In other words, he's saying, if God takes care of the birds, can't you trust him to take care of you? Now, the underlying assumption there is you're supposed to think he cares more about you than he does the birds. I'm not sure that's... Universal in the church. It's sure not the thought for all these save the earth people. Because their plan seems to be save the earth by killing everybody except me. Me being them. Let the people starve but save the earth. Folks, God made the earth for one purpose and that was to serve man. That's why he made man last. He made everything, put everything here, said, okay, now here's man. You're in charge of this. If God wanted to save the earth, if that was the ultimate plan, God would just not have made man and said, wow, look at this. I always wanted a garden. (laughs) Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. How much more are you better than the fowls? And which of you with taking thought? That means worry. 
Which of you by worrying can add one stature to add to his stature one cubit? Now notice what he said about worrying. He said it's a waste of time. Now folks, why would the devil want you to waste time? Because it's a distraction. Somebody once said, I don't know who to attribute this to, but somebody once said that worry is kind of like a rocking chair. You don't get anywhere, but it keeps you busy. That's what worry is. Worry is thinking something that is a distracting thought. A distraction from what? A distraction from the word. You start thinking about what you're going to do or what your problems are, you're not thinking about what God's promises are. Which of you with taking thought or worrying can add to his stature one cubit? Verse 26, please notice this. If you then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take you thought for the rest? If you can't change one little thing about you or your body, or your physical situation by worrying, why are you wasting your time? Now, that's the Son of God asking you a direct question. Why are you wasting your time with worry? Worry will kill you, folks. Do you realize there are more stress-related, and stress is just a fancy word for saying worry. There are more stress-related diseases, killing diseases, than any other thing on the planet. Worry is the greatest killer there is. Why? What are people worrying about? I don't know. I, I, I think I learned this early. And, and to be honest with you, I think it's one of the first things that God ever deals with you about. Because without the, the knowledge that the Word of God is true, you'll learn from the world to worry. Now, I remember as a kid, I didn't worry about anything. I just remember being carefree. Uh, we didn't have anything as a as, uh, uh, family growing up in Alabama. I didn't know we were poor. Nobody told us we were poor. I thought we had butter beans three times a week because we liked them. <coughs> But that was all we could afford. Now, it wasn't because my dad didn't make money. He made a lot of money. But, boy, he'd blow it. He had a supernatural ability to make money and a supernatural ability to lose it. And he lost it on drinking and gambling and doing that kind of stuff, at least in part. Not entirely, but at least in part. But we didn't have anything. And I remember being carefree. I remember seeing my mother sometimes I'd come in, and I'd see the worried look on her face, and I'd say, what's wrong, Mom? She said, oh, Mike, I don't know. Just stuff. She didn't want to tell me, didn't want to burden me about anything. Well, I didn't want to take time from playing to talk to my mom. So I just said, oh, mom, it's going to be okay. I just run out the door. Let the door slam, the screen door slam behind me. She told me one time, she said, you know, you said one time to me, mom, it'll be okay. And she said, all of a sudden I realized, yeah, it's going to be okay. I thought, wow, who knew? I learned to worry. Man, I learned. I don't know how I learned, but I learned well. Because by the time I got in college, I'm worried about everything. I'm worried about what I am doing. I'm worried about what I'm not doing. I'm worried about what I want to do. I'm worried about what I can't do. I'm worried about everything. But then I got a hold of some of Brother Hagin's teaching. And uh, the Lord supernaturally worked it out for me to go to, to Bible school there in Tulsa. And I had, um, I had gotten there. It was a, it was a miraculous thing. Somebody, the Lord just spoke to somebody to give me the money to, to move from Birmingham, Alabama to Tulsa, Oklahoma. And enough money to, um, 
to pay a down payment or the security deposit, I guess it was, on a place to stay and the first, the, the registration fee for Rama. And that was it. I mean, it was a miraculous thing. Just came out of the blue. I was uh, uh, two days late getting there because it came at the last minute. Missed the first day of orientation. They said, if you're late, you can't get in. But somehow I got in. And so here I am. I'm in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Now, all I've got is enough money to start. Well, the way they had it divided up then, I don't know how they do it now. But the way they had it divided up then, they'd let you pay six months, let you pay your registration fee, and then six monthly payments of $185 a month, you know, for uh, tuition and to, to stay in school. Well, I get to Rama. It, uh, it was uh, started right after Labor Day. I was I got there. It uh, started on Monday. Monday was Labor Day. Started on Tuesday. I got there about Thursday. Got in and settled in and that kind of stuff. So October, early October, maybe the fifth or something like that, whatever it was, that the date that the money was due. I've found jobs. I've got two jobs, but I haven't gotten paid for either one of them yet. I'm working a night shift, the graveyard shift in uh, downtown cleaning the office buildings as a janitor. And then I've also worked a way into to refereeing uh, flag football games and stuff like that to make some extra money on the side. But uh, none of the money has started coming in yet. So we had um, um, a chapel service on Tuesday and Thursday of the, the school week. And after a Thursday chapel service, it was about, uh, I don't know, 5th, 6th, 7th of October, something like that, just a day or so after the um, the payment was due and I hadn't made it. I got, uh, they read a list of names at the chapel service and meet uh, after classes, meet uh, the dean of the school in a certain place, certain room, certain place. Well, I knew what it was. And in, and for just a moment, I was encouraged that I wasn't the only, the only name on the list. I thought, okay, well, there's some other people on here. There's about 10 other people. So we get there, we show up, and he sits down, and he says, well, I guess you all know why you're here. I thought, well, I know why I'm here. I'm not too sure about everybody else. But he says, okay, he said, all you guys missed your first payment uh, for school, for tuition this month. He said, now, he said, we believe in faith. We teach it around here. But we believe that if your faith is going to work, it's going to work well enough for you to make it on time to pay your bills. I remember my first thought was, man, that's hard. (laughs) He said, we're believing God just like you are. And since you've missed your first payment, he said, here's what we're going to do. We've found, or he said, uh, well, I guess I should break this up and say it the way he said it. He said, uh, uh, now it's uh, it's Thursday. Your tuition is due Monday morning at 8 o'clock or else you're out of school. He said, however... This is a little different situation for us because next week we're having a seminar. Lester Sumrall was coming in to do a seminar there at school. Now, at the time, I think they've changed things since, but at the time they would cancel the morning classes for the the morning service that he would have there as a part of the seminar. So there would be a seminar that would start at 10 o'clock in the morning, so you wouldn't have any morning classes before then. So there really was no school for that week. It would have morning services and evening services. And all the students were supposed to, were expected to attend at least the morning services. Some had, uh, work commitments that they couldn't come to the night services. But everybody was supposed to, to meet there or to be there for the morning service. So he said, Brother Summerall is going to be here for the seminar next week. He said, so there won't be any classes. So instead of this Monday, your tuition being due, it'll be due the next Monday at eight o'clock in the morning. 
And I thought, well, okay, that gives me an extra week at least. Time is good. But he said, here's what we found in our experience. We found that if somebody's late once, they start getting late all the time. So if you're going to stay in school, you've got to have not just this month's tuition, but by Monday week, you've got to have the rest of the whole thing, which was close to $1,200. But he said, you've got 10 days to get it, so don't worry. (laughs) And I'm thinking, my goodness, $1,200, that's all the money in the world. Who in the world has $1,200, much less how can I get it? Now, I remember really seriously, I remember one of the first things that happened was that I thought I had a feeling of being feeling sorry for myself. The first thought I had was, wow, this is so unfair. How could they be doing this to me? Don't they know God sent me here? Now, folks, I say that because what a lot of people don't realize is that feeling sorry for yourself is worry. And it's so funny. I mean, I've, I've had some experience on this thing. I've been doing this now for a number of years. There's a lot of times where people want to put in a prayer request, and they don't really want you to pray. They just want you to know how bad things are for them. <clears throat> and you can tell by the way they say it. Oh, Pastor Mike, I want you to pray for me. And they'll tell you all the side story. They'll tell you what all they've done for God and how, how unfair this is because it's happening to them. <clears throat> well, what do you do? There's no point in saying it'd be a waste of time to pray because you're worrying, you're feeling sorry for yourself because they're not going to hear that. They've been feeling sorry for themselves for 30 years. They're not going to give it up now. So you just muddle through some kind of prayer to make them feel good, knowing that they're not believing God, knowing that your words had no effect because there was no connection. There's nothing based on the word. But you see the same people over and over and over again. I see them coming. I'll see them coming from the back of the room, and I'll know, here it comes. They're wanting me to feel sorry for them about something. And I've decided that the way to do that, if, at least if it's somebody that's part of the church, is just give them enough time so that they feel good about telling me their story. But it's a waste of my time, and it's a waste of their time. Because nothing's ever going to change. That was the first thought that came to me. How could this be happening to me? But I stopped that and I said, okay, well, now now you got to realize I've been in school for less than a month. I hadn't heard a whole lot of anything that Brother Hagin has said. I don't know much. I'm glad I've learned something over the years. But, man, back then I knew next to nothing. But somehow or another I knew enough. I had enough of a foundation to know that the Word of God is either true or it's not. Folks, I didn't, I didn't grow into this. This is the way I approached it. I, from the first time that I heard Brother Hagin teach faith, I determined, you know, the Bible is either true or it's a lie. It's not one or the other. It's got to be, or I'm sorry, it's not both. It's either one or the other. And if it's true, then it's something we can rely on. If it's not true, then what are we wasting our time for? That's just the way I approach things. I don't know if it's personality or what, but that's just the way I approach things. So I I came at it from that standpoint. I said to myself, no, I'm not going to feel sorry for myself. Here's a chance to prove God's word. So I made a plan. Before I even left the room, I made a plan. I said, all right. One thing I have learned from Brother Higgins, he said he doesn't pray too quick. He meditates on the scriptures and gets something down on his heart, gets it firmly fixed in his heart, even if he knows what the scriptures are before he prays. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the rest of the day and tomorrow, Friday, 
And then Saturday morning, I'm going to pray about this. Well, I really didn't need to do that because I settled on one scripture and there was only one scripture that I really relied on. And that was Philippians 419. But my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now, I was thinking all Thursday afternoon, I was thinking, now, Lord, you brought me here miraculously. You got me here in a supernatural way. Now, if I, I won't take time to do it, but the reason that that first miracle worked to get me there was because I had obeyed him in forgiving somebody. Forgiving, particularly the forgiving the woman that my dad had married after he had remarried. Because my dad died in, uh, in April of 1980, and it was a couple of months after that that I went to school. And during that period of time, she made it known to me and my brother that in no way did anything that belonged to my dad uh, was that coming to me or coming to us? My dad had died without a will on purpose, or at least he hadn't, uh, he had set it up to where his will didn't go into probate, thinking that he could trust her to do what he wanted to do with whatever, you know, he had. And that was a mistake. At least if that was his original intent. Her story was that's what he always wanted. He didn't want us to have anything and too bad for you. So I had some forgiving to do, and that's the reason why that first miracle worked. But now I'm talking to God and I'm saying, Lord, you brought me here in a miraculous way. I didn't have anything to do with this. I couldn't have made this happen if I had tried. All I did was trust you and, and, and agree to do what I felt like you were telling me to do. Now, there's no way you brought me out here to stay here for a month. I don't even have enough, have enough money to get out of town. If I don't go to school, what do I do? I can't pay for the place that I'm, I'm in unless I work the jobs that I've got here. I'm not, I don't want to live in Tulsa. I don't understand why anybody wants to live in Tulsa. And that's coming from somebody that grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. So it's kind of like, Lord, this can't be the end of this. It just cannot be. You didn't bring me here for me to not go to school. So I'm thinking about all, uh, thinking about that all Thursday evening, all day Friday. I'm trying to meditate on other scriptures and I keep coming back to the same thing. Lord, you brought me here and you brought me here to go to school. I can't go to school if they kick me out. They're going to kick me out if I don't have the money. If I don't have $1,200, they're going to kick me out. So by Saturday morning, I really hadn't meditated on much. I'd talked to the Lord about it a little bit here and there, kind of got some things settled in my heart. But by Saturday morning, I got in the shower which is where I do a lot of my praying. I got in the shower and I said, okay, Lord, that's it. You brought me here for me to go to school. Therefore, that means I'm going to have to go to school, which means I've got to have $1,200 by Monday week. Now, I did something I really hadn't planned on from that point. I just said, thank you, Father. You said you'd meet my needs according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. That's it as far as I'm concerned. And as soon as I said that, I lifted my hands and I began to praise God, made myself praise God, didn't feel like praising God, made myself start praising God, and the thought came to me. I'll never forget it. It was clear as a bell. The thought came to my mind, not my spirit. I know very, very clearly the difference between the devil talking to your mind and God speaking to your spirit. The thought came to my mind, you better pray in tongues about this. Now, you can get in some real theological circles about this. You can go around and around in circles over that. Why would the devil tell you to pray in tongues? Would the devil ever tell you to pray in tongues? Yeah, for the wrong reason. 
See, the Bible says when you pray in tongues, it's your spirit praying. But if you're praying from a motivation of fear, God looks on your heart, not just the words that you speak. So I realized that you can pray in fear. I knew it was the devil. I knew instantly it was the devil. And I realized at that moment something I'd never known before, and that is you can pray in fear in English just like you can pray in fear in tongues. Prayers prayed in fear in English don't work. What about in tongues? You can say all the right words in fear and they won't do any good because they're not from your heart. You can say all the right words in tongues or whatever the Holy Ghost gives you to say in tongues and it won't work because of the motivation of fear. So I just spoke up out loud. I said, nope, that's it. I'm not going to pray about this one second in other tongues. Father, if you're not big enough to honor your word, then I guess I'll just go home. But I believe your word's true. Well, Monday comes around. Seminar week. I go to the seminar in the morning. Went to afternoon healing school, prayer school and healing school. They had a a combined thing. They didn't have healing school that week. They combined them both into one prayer meeting. And uh, Patsy Bierman then, Caminetti now, was, uh, was running prayer school that week. And so she said this. She said, now I'm, I'm thinking, now you gotta realize I've been now for a couple of days already. And my mind is, is being bombarded with what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? And each time I would turn the thought away and say, I'm gonna trust God's word. That's what I'm gonna do. The Bible says God will supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. That's it. Again, the thoughts would come. You better pray in tongues. Nope. Not gonna do it. Not going to do it. Not going to pray in tongues over this. Now, I may pray in tongues about something else, but it's not going to be about this. Well, Monday prayer school comes along, and Patsy stands up and says, I've just got it on my heart that we need to pray for our own needs. Thinking, dear God, that's the last thing I need to do. I don't need to pray about my needs. If I start praying in my need, about my needs, I'm going to start worrying. So I said, okay, well, this is going to be a waste of time. What I'm going to do is I'm going to pray about the needs for everybody else in here. So I started looking around the room. Some people I knew, some people I didn't. And so I just started picking them off one by one. Lord, I pray for this person. I pray that you'd meet their needs, whatever they're going through. And then I start praying in tongues over about them. Then I'd catch my mind start to wander back. What are you going to do? It's only seven days now. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? I'd catch myself. Sometimes instantly, sometimes I'd be there for a little bit. And then I'd catch. But as soon as I'd come to myself and realize, wait a minute, I'm thinking about the wrong thing here. I'm thinking about something that God's already dealt with. Something that the word of God already promised me. I'd get right back over and say, nope, I'm going to pray about them. I did this for five days. Every day, Patsy would say the same thing. I just feel like we need to pray for our own needs. Oh, Patsy, please give us something to pray about. Give me something I can focus my mind on. I prayed about everybody else's needs that I could think of. Never once prayed about mine. There were times where I'd thank God, thank you, Father, that your word's true for me. Therefore, thank you for $1,200 by next Monday. That's all I'd say. And I wouldn't say one word in tongues about it. At night, lay down to sleep. The devil knows, knows how to tell time really, really well. He'd tell me how much time was left. What are you going to do? You only got four days now. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You catch your mind thinking that way. You can't keep thoughts from coming to your mind, folks, but you can decide what you will choose to think. And I struggled with it. I struggled with it all week long. Friday comes around. I went to the morning service. I was getting ready to, to get back over to, uh, to prayer school. 
Knowing full well, Patsy is going to have us pray for her own needs. And I got a phone call from my sister. It's about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. I got a phone call from my sister-in-law. And she said, Mike, I've got some good news for you. I said, okay. She said, you remember that bass boat your daddy used to have? Yeah. He was sitting out in front of his, front of his house. Real, it had decked out. My dad was rich toward himself. He wasn't really rich toward anybody else or toward God, but my dad was rich toward himself. He would buy himself anything and everything in the world. Wouldn't do anything for his family. But boy, he had treated himself well. He bought the nicest bass boat. It had a fish finder that would find a fish in an aquarium six blocks away. Man, it was the highest tech thing. It was the sharpest and the nicest thing of, uh, that you could get. And so anyway, she said, uh, well, you remember the bass boat your daddy had? And I said, yeah, I remember. She said, well, uh, his wife called her by name, sold that. And she's dividing the proceeds between you and Scott. It's her taking half and then the other half between you and him. I said, really? She said, yeah. She said, it's $1,200. This is Friday. Friday. I said, well, okay, that's great. She said, I'm going to put it in the mail this afternoon. Now, she's two hours ahead of where I was. So she said, I'm going to, or one hour, maybe. Yeah, it's only one hour, I guess, from there. She said, I'm going to put it in the mail this afternoon. It's one o'clock already. Mail's gone. She said, I'm going to put it in the mail this afternoon, and you'll get it just as soon as they can get it out to you. I said, well, okay. Thanks, Phyllis. I appreciate that. I hung up the phone. And part of me wanted to jump up and down and do flips, but then I got to thinking. Before the phone call was even over, I got to thinking, the mail won't get here in time. Now, you think I could have walked in there with an excuse saying the check's in the mail, give me till tomorrow. You're wrong. These folks said Friday at 8 o'clock. They meant Friday at 8 o'clock. 9 o'clock's not going to work. Tomorrow's not going to work. So I said, okay, Lord, well, I guess... There's one of two things. Somehow you're going to have to get this to me miraculously in time. Now, what would that mean? They deliver the mail on Saturday, but they don't deliver the mail on Sunday. They're not going to deliver the mail on Saturday if she hadn't put it in the mail yet from Tulsa, from Birmingham to Tulsa. So I said, so that means one of two things. Lord, you're either going to have to get this thing to me miraculously on time, or you've still got another $1,200 to come up with for school tuition on Monday morning. I refuse to think anything to the contrary. Now, folks, you need to understand, I, I'm, I'm, there's no way I can adequately describe this. I'm passing up millions of opportunities every day to worry. Every day. And when you lay down at night and things get quiet, man, everything was quiet except my head. So, finished the day on Friday, went back, prayed for other people's needs instead of my own. Went to the service Friday night. Seminar was over that night. Saturday morning, I get up, and about 10 o'clock in the morning, I go to the mailbox. That's when they delivered the mail. And this check is there for $1,200. Now, you tell me how that happened. She didn't post it until 3 o'clock the day before. And I got it at 10 o'clock in the morning. Monday comes around. I marched this thing into their office. 
put it in, had already deposited it, deposited overnight on uh, Saturday night. And the devil's telling me all the time, I'm walking into the office on Sunday morning, there's, he's telling me, this check's going to bounce. That deposit hadn't cleared yet. You know it takes two days for that deposit to clear back in Birmingham for it to be credited to your account. They're going to see you bounce them a check, and they're going to kick you out anyway. By that time, I'm just saying, shut up, shut up, shut up. God's on my side. Well, the end of the story was, it worked. I wrote them a check. I told them the deposit had been made overnight on Saturday. So I'm not sure how the banks worked. But here this check is. It cleared. He told me, he warned me. He said, now if this check bounces, if it bounces, we don't run it again. That means you're out. I said, well, that's your problem. Here's the money. It worked. I learned early. I learned early on in this stuff that the only way to make your faith work is to not worry. Be careful for nothing. Folks, there's lots of things to be careful about. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. You know, I, uh, I played basketball in college. And uh, wasn't nearly as good as I could have been. Wasn't nearly as good as I could have been. And the reason I wasn't as good as I could have been is because I worried about mistakes. I'd make a mistake. I'd make a turnover. And I'd be, I'd be worthless for the next three minutes of the game. Because I'm thinking about the last mistake I made. I'd see other guys make twice as many mistakes as I did, never even think about it and just keep playing the game. And you know what I thought about them? I thought they didn't have enough good sense to worry. They weren't smart enough to know the mistakes they were making. Isn't it amazing how the we in our society somehow think that people don't worry are an oddity? The people that don't worry don't have enough sense to know what's really going on. Folks, worry is not a sign of intelligence or wisdom. It's a sign of unbelief. You remember in John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. A troubled heart is an unbelieving heart. We could say it this way. A worrying heart is an unbelieving heart. A worrying heart is an unbelieving heart. What are you worried about? Now, as I said before, we're way too smart to call worry, worry. We just say we're concerned. And even faith people will say, now, 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 you have to use wisdom. And usually what that means is you have to worry as you go. Turn with me back to, uh, I'm not sure where I left you. Turn with me over to, to 1 Peter chapter 5 again. Let's start in verse 6 this time. The whole context of this chapter, or what Peter is talking about, is submitting yourselves. He started off in verse 1, and he says, Submit yourself to your pastors, to those ministers that are over you in the Lord. Then he goes further in verse 5, and he says, Now you younger people, submit yourselves unto the elders. In other words, realize, young folks, realize that old folks have a little bit more life experience. 
You know, it's a funny thing. <clears throat> Churches are families. The Bible talks about the body of Christ being the family of God. Churches have the same problem that families do. Sometimes there are physical attacks against your families. This works the same way in the church. Sometimes there are financial issues that come up in families. It's the same way with churches. And sometimes those financial issues is because there's an unexpected uh, expense or something that's, uh, that's come on that, uh, that nobody was planning for. And, uh, and that's part of the issue. And sometimes it's just a cash flow issue. Sometimes it's not a matter of lack. It's just cash flow. Well, churches have the same things as families do. Sometimes in the families or in our families, somebody's not doing right. Sometimes the young people are rebelling against mom and dad's rules. And sometimes those young people, particularly teenagers, try to convince other people in the family that they're right and mom and dad are wrong. It's the same way in churches. You'll get spiritual children or spiritual teenagers that won't do right and that they're convinced that they know more than the pastor does and who set the rules anyway. And folks, the, the, the point I'm trying to get across to you is there's hardly ever a time that we come to church where somebody doesn't deserve a good skin in. I'm just being honest. There's hardly ever a time that we come together to have church that somebody doesn't deserve to be flayed with the word of God. But how would that help? Who would that help? No, Paul told Timothy, who was a pastor at the time, Paul told Timothy to preach the word. In other words, you can't put out all the fires that are going on in life. Any more than I can put out all the fires that take place in church. So what are you supposed to do? Go back to the word because the word is the only thing that's going to feed people. The word's the only thing that's going to give people the opportunity to hear from God to make the adjustments they need to make. Just like worrying doesn't do any good, me telling somebody what they ought to do is not going to do any good. They already know what they ought to do. The Holy Ghost has been telling them that. So me trying to tell them, me having the, and, and here again, this is pride on our part. We think, oh, if we tell them, that'll do it. Right. Didn't do it for you. You changed because God dealt with your heart to change. That's the only reason people change, folks. So what do you do? You preach the word. You go right back to the word. Now, what I'm trying to point out to you is we do as a big church family, as a congregation, we do as a church family the same thing you're supposed to do in your personal lives. Instead of trying to put out the fires or worrying about the fires that are burning, just go back to the word. Just go back to the word. That's the point that Peter's making here. He's saying, now, be willing to submit yourself. Submit yourself to the ministers that are over you. Younger people, submit yourselves to the older people. They do know more than you, even though you don't think so. And then he goes and says in verse 6, humble yourselves therefore. In other words, he's saying and all of us need to submit ourselves to God. How do you submit yourself to God? There's only one way, and that is to submit yourself to his word. You remember when Jesus went to Jerusalem and cleared out the, cha- the money changers out of the temple? Remember the story? Bible says Jesus went to the temple and the money changers were there and he took a, a, a rope and made a little whip out of it. And he chased them out, turned over the tables. These merchants left their money sitting on the floor and ran for their lives. So Jesus didn't go in there saying, now, come on, this isn't right. Y'all leave. He chased them out. And do you remember what he said? 
He said, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've turned it into, into a den of thieves. You remember that? What does that mean? My father's house shall be called a house of prayer. If you think prayer means asking God for something, then what that means is the church should be a place where we all come and ask God for what we want. But that can't be right. No, prayer means more than just asking God for something. Prayer means, in its basis, simplest form, prayer means fellowship or communion with God. Now, does that mean that church is the only place that we're supposed to commune or fellowship with God? No, in fact, the Bible says because Jesus is now raised from the dead, this building is not the church. You are the house of God. So that means you, in your life, is supposed to, are supposed to, fellowship with God continually. And there's only one way you can do that, and that's through His Word. It's not even asking God for something that gets your prayers answered or gets the results. It's bringing His Word back to Him. That's the prayer that works. Well, then if that's the way it's supposed to be with us in our lives, then our lives should be a constant communion or talking to God about His Word. And that's what Peter's talking about. Humble yourselves, therefore. Somebody asked Smith Wigglesworth, who got a lot of miracles and a lot of miraculous things from, from God in his life. Somebody asked him one time, Brother Wigglesworth, how much do you pray? And he thought for a minute and he said, well, I rarely pray over any one little thing, one specific thing, for more than 30 minutes at a time. But then he smiled and he said, but I never go 30 minutes without praying. What's he saying? He's saying his life is the house of God. His life is a prayer communion or fellowship with God continuously. Prayer is not some formal thing, folks. It's talking to God. And that's what Jesus is talking about. My house, the house that he built, which wasn't the church building. It wasn't the temple. Remember, he disdained the temple. That was the same temple he ran the money changers out of. Later on, the disciples said, oh, isn't this a beautiful place? And Jesus said, it's coming a time where not one stone is going to be left on another. This is Herod's temple, not God's temple. So when he's talking about the house, my father's house, he's talking about the church that he came to build, which means you, you as a living house made up of living stones. So what does that mean? That means you in your life can't put out all the fires. What's the point in worrying about all the fires? God said he'll take care of the things that you need. Instead, focus on the word. That's what James, that's what first Peter five, six means. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. You can't do that unless you submit yourself to his word. It doesn't have as much to do with attitude as it does a decision. I'm going to accept the word of God to be true no matter how I feel. And since I've accepted the word of God to be true no matter how I feel, I'm going to do the word. I'm going to think the word. I'm going to speak the word. I'm going to stick with the word. And just like in church, even though if there's somebody here that deserves to be skinned, The Word will not only help them if they'll be open to it, the Word will help everybody. Rather than me standing up here and skinning somebody with the Word of God, trying to make them change, how's that going to help you? Only thing it's going to make you do is, only thing it's going to do for you is to say, man, I'm not coming to church if I'm doing something wrong. And isn't that how some churches are? Some pastors preach from the pulpit trying to fix people's problems. It never works. I've had people come to our church and they hadn't been here for very long. And so they're saying, Pastor Mike, I need to tell you what's going on, but please don't preach this. I never preach people's problems. 
refuse to. If I do tell something that's going on, I'll say it in a way you don't know who it is. And that's only if it's something that can bless and benefit everybody else. And and that's never been the case. I've never done that except long after the fact. Well, isn't that the way we're supposed to live? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. In other words, submit yourself to the word that he may exalt you in due time. How does God exalt you? Through his word. Through his word coming to pass in your life. How are we going to do that? What does a submitted life to the word of God look like? Casting all your cares over on him. In other words, a submitted life is a carefree life. A submitted life is a carefree life. And if it's not a carefree life, it's not a life submitted to the word. I didn't say you didn't love God. The submitted life is one that says the word's true no matter how I feel. No matter what's going on, no matter how big the problems are. Oh, but Pastor Mike, you don't understand what I'm dealing with. No, I'm sure I don't. Unless you tell me. And that's not necessary. Because whatever it is, the word covers the problem. Now turn back with me to Second Corinthians chapter 12. I said something last week. Let me close with this. I said something last week that I got a lot of questions about this, uh, this past week. And I was talking about Paul's thorn in the flesh. We were teaching last week on counting in all joy. Uh, I really don't want to read through the whole the whole thing. So let me just uh, let me just pick this up at verse seven. Paul said, uh, "Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me." Notice it's the messenger of Satan. He didn't say God gave me anything. He said it's the messenger of Satan. In other words, Satan delivered, uh, Satan put an assignment against him. Delivered an attack against him. Not God, but the devil. The messenger of Satan to buffet me lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it, Rotherham and uh, uh, New English Bible say that he might depart from me. Well, if it's from the devil... The devil stirred up trouble through one of the demons uh, under his control, apparently. And the Rotherham's Bible and others bring that out. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it or he might depart from me. And he, the Lord, said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. The word infirmities means weakness, not sickness. In reproaches in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Now, what I said last week was grace is never applied to the physical body. Never, ever, 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 ever. You can't find one time, Old Testament or New Testament, New Testament talks a lot more about grace than the Old Testament does. You can't find one time in any context that grace is ever applied to the physical body. Now, I got some questions about that. And I guess maybe I should have taken more time to, to, to cover that, but I assume everybody understands what that means. How many of you understand what that means? Okay, well, I should have taken a lot more time with that then. Okay, sorry. I assume things that weren't necessarily so. Here's what that means. The Bible talks about grace, and there's many different definitions. Probably the most common definition is unmerited favor. 
I don't like that definition because everybody focuses on the unmerited rather than the favor. You wind up thinking more about yourself than you do God. Specifically, the word grace means the divine influence upon the heart. Talking about the inner man, the spirit man. The divine influence upon the heart and its reflection in your life. Now, you may have heard me say that as far as I'm concerned, the word grace means very simply the finished work of Jesus. But there's a specific aspect of that and there's a general aspect of that. So maybe I need to clarify that as well. For example, the Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God. Right? Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that scripture. For by grace are you saved. What does that word grace mean? Well, we could say, we could interject the, the definition for by the finished work of God are you saved. Because by, except for the finished work of Jesus, there is no salvation. Right? And the access, Paul said, we have access into this grace, this finished work of Jesus through faith. Faith is the means whereby you take hold of what Jesus has already done, right? Faith is the means, not grace. Faith is the means. Faith is the thing that's provided for you. Faith is the way to take hold of it. But the Bible says, Paul says, makes it very clear that the life of God is supposed to be, the life of Jesus is supposed to be manifested in our physical bodies, not the grace of Jesus. Not the grace of God to be manifested in our physical bodies, but the life of Jesus. Here's what that means. Paul talked about himself. Uh, generally, we can talk about grace being the finished work of Jesus. Specifically, Paul talked about grace as being strength. Here he's talking about strength. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is sufficient for you. Paul talked about the grace of God that was given unto him to be a minister of the gospel. What's he saying? He's saying that I have been given strength to be a minister. Why do you need strength to be a minister? Because people are going to talk against you. Because you're going to have resistance of the devil. You're going to have opposition. So he's talking about God has given me strength to overcome the opposition of the devil. Now, we know that to be true in a general sense. And, and, and for everybody, you've got the grace to be whatever you are, whatever God has given you to do in life. In other words, some people do some jobs that would drive me crazy. I may do a job that would drive you crazy. Right? We're all made in different ways. But you've got the grace of God. You've got something that God has put on the inside of you that enables you to do what he's called you to do. I don't have that for you or for your job, but I've got it for mine. So that's the grace of God specifically. And it's inner strength that enables you to bear and deal with the things that you need to do to obey God in life. Right? What has God given us to bear? Jesus said, In this world, you'll have persecution, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world, right? Which means that Jesus did not bear our persecutions. You're going to have those here. What else do we have to bear? We have to bear temptation. Jesus didn't bear temptations. We have to deal with temptation that comes against us, but we have strength from God from the inside out, from the inside, from the spirit, man. We have the strength of God to overcome temptation. Right? What does he not tell us to bear? He never says to bear sins. Why? Because Jesus bore your sins. He never tells you to bear sickness because Jesus bore your sickness. He never tells you to bear poverty. He never says, oh, don't worry. I'll strengthen you. No, the Bible says Jesus was chastised for your peace. In other words, he bore your poverty as part of the curse of the law. 
The things that have to do with what Jesus took on himself, the Bible never deals with grace. Because that work's finished. That's been born. So the very fact that Paul uses from the word, he quotes from the, from the, 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 what Jesus said to him. Jesus said, my grace is sufficient to you. He did not say my finished work or my, what I bore for you will deal with this. He said already in this life, you're going to suffer persecution. The godly will suffer persecution, but he says, don't worry about it. It all comes back down to worry. Before then, Paul's been worrying about it enough to where he prays about it three different times. Oh, Lord, take this away from me. And Jesus said, don't worry about this. I'm strong enough in you to handle it. So what is his conclusion? Therefore, I take pleasure. I count it all joy. I count it all joy. That's what I mean by grace never being applied to the physical body. Grace is never applied to what Jesus has already born. Because grace is the strength or the ability, the supernatural ability from God deposited in your spirit to overcome, to deal with the things that we have to deal with in life. What does that mean to you? Well, that means that God will give you the grace to put up with an evil boss. You don't find a scripture anywhere that says you can change your boss. Now, you can pray for him. You can witness to him. You can do everything right in front of him to give him the opportunity to open his heart to be different. But you can't make the change yourself. But you can't have the grace to deal with it even if he continues to be evil. So what should you do? Same thing Paul did. Paul said, now I realize I've got the strength. I know how this works. I've been praying for God to take this away, and that's not something Jesus bore. But now I've got the strength to handle it. So I'm going to quit worrying about it and counter joy. Do you understand what that means? Do you understand what I mean now about grace never being applied to the physical body? Grace is never applied to what Jesus bore. Jesus bore sin, he bore sickness, and he bore poverty. Grace is never applied to those things. Yeah, but what about what about 2 Corinthians chapter 8? Where it says, God shall make all grace abound towards you. Chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. He's talking about finances. Well, where is the grace of God in a general sense? Here we're not talking about grace specifically. We're talking about grace generally. For by grace are you saved. We're talking about the finished work of Jesus. And God is able to make the finished work of Jesus abound towards you so that you having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. He's talking about what Jesus has already accomplished. Folks, it takes more than a concordance to figure out what the meaning is behind the words of God. You can't just make a blanket statement that any time this word is used, here it is, because there are some things Paul talks about by the Holy Spirit in a general sense, some things he talks about in a specific sense. We saw an example of that in the series that we concluded recently on manifestations of the Spirit. Paul talks about prophecy in a general sense. And he talks about prophecy in a specific sense. Specifically, prophecy is for edification, exhortation, and comfort. Generally, prophecy can include revelation. Which one does he mean? Whichever way the Holy Ghost is manifesting himself. If if we're talking about dividing things so that we can define them, specifically, prophecy is exhortation, edification, and comfort. But generally, it can be a vehicle whereby other manifestations of the Spirit can be carried out or delivered to the people. Some things mean different things. 
Some words mean different things depending on the setting. Grace is never used. And the fact that Paul quotes Jesus as saying, my grace is sufficient for you, indicates that it's a spiritual solution, not a physical or a natural one. If this was part of something that Jesus has already born, why wouldn't Jesus have said, why don't you just start believing me instead of complaining about this? Now, most of the church world, or much of the church world at least, turns that around and says that Jesus is saying, no, you just put up with this sickness. You just bear this sickness. Folks, I would submit to you that if Jesus wants you to bear sickness, then he also wants you to bear sin. Because the same verse that says he already took your sickness says he already took your sin. Show me anything in the Bible in any context, in any matter whatsoever, where God wants you to bear sin. And is sin not the origin of sickness? Of course it is. There was no sickness until sin came into the earth. So how would Jesus ever expect you or anybody else to ever bear physical sickness? Now, the Bible says in Malachi, one of the last verses of the of the Old Testament, it says the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. With healing in his wings. When is that talking about? Is that talking about Jesus coming to the earth? Well, he sure came to the earth with healing. To manifest healing, to show the character and the nature of God. But it's talking about Jesus rising from the dead. Jesus arose from the dead with healing in his wings. Healing for the physical body. Grace is never applied to the physical body. Grace is always a spiritual context or a spiritual source of strength to handle whatever the devil throws against you. But remember where we talked about last week. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, wanting nothing. Another translation says that victory may be fully restored. That's why you can bear up under the attack of the enemy, bear up under the persecution of others, because your victory will be fully restored if you be carefree, if you worry not, and trust God with the answer. Therefore, take no thought for your life. Therefore, take no thought for your life. What do you think about? Folks, if you're thinking about anything except the truth of God's word and seeing the word come to pass in your life, then you're worrying. And that's a sin. Some of you got some repenting to do. Boy, it's easy to fall over into worry, isn't it? We've all done it. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes, please. This would be a perfect opportunity for you to cast your cares over on him. Whatever you're facing, whether it's financial, whether it's physical, whatever you're facing, the Bible says God will supply all of your needs. You may need healing. You may need finances. You may need things to change in your family. You may need things to change on your job. Worrying is not going to change any of it. So I want to encourage you to roll those cares over on him. It may be a struggle. Paul said it this way when he's writing to the Jews. He said, we which have believed have entered into rest. That means you've conquered that worry and that care. And you've entered into the truth of what God's word says. I want to invite you to enter into that rest. Father, in the name of Jesus, we cast our cares over on you. We weren't made to carry cares and worries. 
we were made to be vessels of your word. So rather than think about the cares and the concerns and the anxieties that this life brings to us, we choose to think about your word because it's true. Because it's a sure foundation. We refuse to care no matter how serious the situation appears. We refuse to worry no matter how severe the attack against us. We refuse to worry in the name of Jesus. So we cast it over on you, Lord. We cast our financial cares upon you. And we declare that you are our source. We cast our physical cares over on you. And declare that you are our healer. We cast our family situations over on you. And declare that you are working on the hearts of those loved ones that are struggling. We cast the care of our jobs over on you, Father. And declare that you are our source. We cast our cares over on you, Father. And we trust you to turn all things to our advantage. To restore us to victory. To lead us into that wide place. Make known unto us, Lord, the ways of life. And fill us with the joy of your countenance. As we cast our cares over on you. Father, we make a commitment that from this day forward we refuse to pick these cares and worries up again. And should we catch ourselves taking hold of them, we'll simply ask you to forgive us and throw them right back over on you. Because, Father, we are helpless. Apart from Jesus, there's nothing we can do. But, oh, we have Jesus. So we thank you for working things out in every area of our lives. Thank you for teaching us, Lord, to count it joy when these troubles come. Because we can trust in you. We found you faithful to watch over your word to perform it. Faithful to make your word good in our lives. Oh, we joy in your faithfulness, Father. We rejoice that there's nothing that's too hard for you. Nothing that's too hard for you. We recognize, Father, that because we've submitted ourselves to you and submitted ourselves to your word, you are working things out for our good. In Jesus' precious name. In Jesus' precious name. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. 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 God didn't create you to carry worries. He created you to be a carrier of His Word.
So instead of worrying about your problem, think on and meditate on the Word. Say what the Word says instead of what the circumstance wants you to say. Speak the Word instead of your problem. And live carefree. Live carefree. Every time you catch yourself worrying, every time you catch yourself with the slightest bit of worry creeping in, stop it immediately, instantly. Say, no, call it by name. I refuse to worry in Jesus' name. I cast that over on the Lord. Thank you, Father, that you're working it out. You start handling them one by one like that, the devil will know where he can't bother you anymore. Amen? Amen. Well, let's all stand. Hallelujah. I want to encourage you to have a carefree holiday. Folks, Jesus is coming back. There's a work for us to do before He gets here. Wouldn't it be a shame for Jesus to come back today and we would have spent our time worrying about Christmas presents? Or things that won't matter a hill of beans to us then. But won't it be a grand and glorious thing if we do stand before the Lord and He commends us for focusing our attention on things that matter. Things that are eternal. The truth of His Word instead of problems. I wonder how that's going to work. I wonder if the Lord's going to show us a picture of when the devil brought problems to us and says, ah, there was a good opportunity to worry and you gave that one up. Good job. Wouldn't be surprised. I firmly believe that hearing the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant, has a lot to do with dealing with worry in our lives. You can't do a good job. You can't be faithful unless you cast your cares over on Him. Amen? Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being a part of our family. We love you. Have a great day.